0: Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the DealMaker show. So today we're going to learn quite a bit about aerospace and, you know, I think that the founder that we have, uh, you know, our guest today is really going to teach us a lot, you know, on building, scaling, you name it, you know, and I think that we're going to be covering uh, quite a fair amount of fun stories. So I guess without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Daniel Vegan. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi Alejandro, thanks for having me.
0: So originally from Germany there, you know, in a a town called Tübingen that has 18,000 people. I know that you moved quite a bit, you know, growing up. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing. How was life there?
1: Yeah, I was only born in Tübingen uh, and my family quickly after that uh, moved into the Munich area and then I spent large parts of my childhood in Freiburg, which is a very idyllic place, the warmest uh, part of Germany. You have France next door. You have Switzerland next door. You have wonderful mountains for mountain biking, and that's also where I did my gliding pilot license. Uh, I started that when I was fourteen, and I had my first flight alone when I was fourteen, and uh, that that was one of the most uh, moving moments in in that um, in those early days in my
0: childhood. And obviously you obviously went and did your engineering, you know, later on and, and we'll cover that. But one of the things that um, I remember, I think it was uh, Steve Jobs, you know, mentioned that some of the best engineers that he would come across were the ones that also had, you know, an interest in, in music, you know, that that type of creativity. And I know that you started to develop that, you know, quite early on. I mean, you were playing the piano and also in the, in the classical orchestra in school, like at about 11 or 12. Is that right?
1: Yes, yes, that's right. I started playing the trumpet when I was eight, I think, and then played the piano, was a part of the school jazz band of the classic orchestra in school. Um, I always had those, let's say, two hearts, one for the music, one for the uh, technology and flying, but the flying heart was bigger.
0: Very cool. So, then, so in terms of flying and, and aerospace and airplanes, like, at what point do you start to develop this this love for, for airplanes?
1: It was more or less, uh, I, I think, since I can think, since I'm uh, a baby. Um, my pets had to be birds, and I loved everything that could fly. I was dreaming of being able to fly when I was five. Um, I was filming my pets, how they flap the wings and how they control in flight. I was filming them in slow motion. Then later, I built uh, radio-controlled aircraft quite a lot. And then I went to uh, do the gliding pilot license and then ultimately studied aerospace engineering. So that passion for flight uh, was always there. I still remember uh, I had, we had a vacation with my parents in Norway and we were on an island where there's ten thousands and hundred thousands of um, seabirds. And I was standing on that cliff watching all those birds flying in the wind. And then I started crying and my parents totally didn't understand what was wrong with the kid. But I was seriously unhappy that I was born as a human and not as a bird.
0: Wow. That was
1: when I was seven or eight years old.
0: Wow. Wow. And, and obviously, you know, like then you were mentioning you got your license and you were even even doing it yourself at 14, you know, like which is um, which is really amazing. Uh, And then you went and studied economics. So why economics? Why didn't you go straight into aerospace?
1: Well, uh, that had different reasons. At the time, I was um, also interested in, let's say, helping the world solving its biggest problems. And one of the biggest problems was always understanding economy, understanding how wealth is created and how it's distributed, etc. So that was um, a big passion at the time as well. So I... I studied this because it was uh, also next door, and it was easy to to try out and to test. I actually stopped my um, my flying at the time because, as a student, you have so many other things in your mind that you don't want to spend uh, every weekend uh, on the airport. Um, so there was a little bit of phase where I not broke, but I I was withdrawing a little bit from the from the aviation side, but noticed and it. It it was not uh, where my heart was, and and then I stopped the economic studies, went to Munich, and studied aerospace engineering.
0: And then you went to Switzerland for a year, and you started working, you know, there a little bit and getting your your feet wet, you know, as well on the on the space. Uh, but I guess that this actually was the nice segue, you know, that you needed to really get your your little push, and obviously this this would really get you into entrepreneurship, but tell us tell us what happened there.
1: Yeah, it was extremely helpful to get me into entrepreneurship in a sense that um, I think I worked at ABB in Switzerland, in Zurich, which is, uh, from all I can tell, one of the best corporate uh, cultures from those, let's say, classic uh, mechanical engineering companies here in Europe. So I've seen lots of good things about people management and, uh, let's say, how bigger corporations work. But at the same time, it was clear to me after being a project manager and and working on exciting things at the time, I was working on hybrid chip propulsion with 50 or 100 megawatts class. Um, It was clear to me that, um, let's say, a classic large corporation would not be the right place for me. And it it was clear that uh, I would, I didn't say I will found a company in a year or so, but I wanted to work in smaller, more entrepreneurial environments that was something that became very obvious to me
0: got it so then what happened next then i went back to munich as uh,
1: went into the master i actually went to switzerland to to get money because i had a girlfriend uh, in sweden and i needed to fly there every uh, every couple of um every two weeks or so that was quite expensive so i had to earn some money And once I had the money, I went back to Munich, uh, finished my studies. And then uh, on the way, I did an Erasmus semester in Scotland, in Glasgow. And um, that was where I had the idea to build a company that makes an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft and uh, brings different regions, maybe countries uh, in Europe and elsewhere, closer together. And uh, from that moment onwards, I was... More or less, it was like pushing a switch. Um, I, I thought to myself, this is completely crazy. I didn't even share it with anybody except my flatmate and two or three other people uh, in Glasgow. But I said to myself, I will do this and uh, went back to Munich, uh, looked for my co-founders um, and, and drove everything to founding the company, getting money, etc. It was just sure. the right thing for me to do. And I still can't describe why, but um, it was just right.
0: And what was that process? I know that there was a very interesting process here for finding your co-founders that you followed. So so tell us about it.
1: Yeah, that was fun. I had a, a good friend of mine um, who, who I knew already, and we had discussed before I went to Glasgow that we wanted to uh, build a company that makes um, range extenders for hybrid cars. And then I came back to him and said, I have a much better idea. We will make electric jet aircraft. And it took me a day walking through Munich, um, eight or 10 hours walk in Munich to convince him that we should actually bet all our, our, all our little student wealth on building a company that makes electric jets. And uh, then he had a friend of himself and uh, he was an aerodynamicist. And he said, I can judge the mechanical part of this story but I can't judge the aerodynamics part. So he went to his friend and and asked him um, whether he can judge it. So so I met the guy as well, and uh, we went uh, into a conversation, and and it was just fun. We got along with each other very well. And a few days later, we said, um, why don't we make him a co-founder? He's one of the smartest guys uh, in the in the department. Uh, he's on his PhD. He has all this knowledge, etc. So we brought him in. Then we were three. And the last one, we said we need uh, someone who can do all the avionics and controls of our prototype. And um, we didn't find somebody in our network. And then one day I walked into the kitchen of the robotics department at the Technical University of Munich and said to the secretary, can you get me all the PhDs uh, into the room who finish their PhD in, in the next couple of months? I'm gonna, I have a job for them. And she was looking at me a little bit, um, yeah, as if I was a bit weird. But she actually got me the entire department into the kitchen. And I was telling those people my usual story, a very embarrassing three-page presentation uh, about uh, electric VTOL aircraft for everybody. And half of the people in the room left after two minutes. They said, the guy is completely crazy. Then one-third maybe stayed out of curiosity. And in the end, after 20 minutes... Um, There were maybe three people staying and one of them was our co-founder, Matthias, and and he just um, was buying into the story. Uh, We spent the whole evening talking five, six hours um, about how to solve all those technical problems. Uh, Same thing, did a long walk through the city. And uh, yeah, one week later, we had spaghetti dinner in my shared flat with the other co-founders. And that was the interview process. The funny thing is he just started his PhD uh, six months ago. His parents were super happy that finally their son, who was always playing in rock bands and all these things, uh, had a proper job and an income. And then he went to his father and said, "Um, Dad, I'm going to quit my job and found uh, this company that makes jets. So his father was not uh, super overwhelmed by this idea. And I still remember that a few weeks later, his family and his parents visited us in, in Munich. And I had a very tough interview with his father um, in, in a cafe where he was hammering me with questions on, on all the plans and the business plan and how this could be successful. But um, apparently I didn't make the worst impression, so he didn't pursue Matthias to not go with us. And that's how we started.
0: Very cool. I mean, you were literally interviewed by the father. I mean, it's the first time that I hear this. <laughs> That's amazing. <Yes. laughs> wow, wow. So then, obviously, you got the you got the green light. And then, you know, now that the band, you know, got together, like, what were the immediate steps that you guys took? You know, because obviously, this is not like the typical, you know, software-as-a-service startup. I mean, this is a bit different. So, so how did you guys, you know, like, really bring this to life?
1: So the first thing we went off was trying to get... Um, some kind of state funding which uh, we failed Um, then ultimately we got a little bit of state funding from the uh, european space agency which was i think fifty thousand euros and an office space and that's where we founded the company Uh, everything else was bootstrapped in the first 12 months which in retrospect i wouldn't recommend anybody to do Um, obviously you have a bit more shares and you have a better valuation but I think it would have been smarter to directly get some business angels on board, but we bootstrapped the first 12 months. We went in debt, uh, got some, everybody got some 10,000 euros from their parents or from the bank and uh, a bit more after a couple of months because it wasn't sufficient. And then uh, the objective of that first summer was to make um, a fully functional prototype in the three meter span. It had a carbon fiber body, um, a fly-by-wire control system, 36 little electric jet engines, etc. And we actually succeeded in this, but we were running out of money. So three, four weeks before the first flight of this prototype, uh, it was clear that we would run out of money before the thing was in a condition that we could actually demonstrate it to investors. So we went off and said, okay, we need to find a business angel now and maybe uh, have a a lower price for our shares. And so during the day, we were out on uh, startup fairs, etc., trying to make a network um, with business angels. And from noon to midnight, uh, we were in the garage building this prototype. And then the funny thing is um, we ran into, I think, Germany's most famous um, seed investor. Frank Talen, and I didn't know that he was so famous. He has his own TV show. That's the German version of Shark Tank. But I was so much into this airplane and nerd stuff that I only noticed who the guy actually was by the time he was visiting us and he was standing in our workshop. Um, But we had a click. We perfectly worked together. They, They liked the founders. They had a huge respect for all the thinking and the technology. And we liked them. We had a lot of trust in each other which prevails until today. And that's an invaluable asset, I think, um, that I can only recommend every founder to make sure that the first investors who come in are really a click like your co-founders. And um, then they actually called me, um, I think a day later or two days later and said, we're going to invest now. We won't wait until the plane flies. We believe in the team. We believe you guys can solve that. And uh, we invest now. And uh, then we yeah, we kept the promise and the plane was flying four or six weeks later. But it was great because we saved some time. We had cash uh, in the company earlier and we were right away um, hiring people into the company. The first employee was my former dance partner from the Salsa dance class, who was also working in a startup. They went just bankrupt and we went for a coffee. And she told me, "Hey, I just lost my job, my startup got bankrupt and I said, "Hey, I just got half a million, and I need people who can do stuff and The day
0: later she was employed Wow, well very very cool and 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 in this case, especially for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model?
1: So the business model at the time was different. We pivoted a little bit at when we started it was the intention was to build a two seater and um sell these two-seaters in a large quantity to get the cost down and sell these to private individuals who would then uh, have to make a pilot license to actually fly these planes. And there were two big um, problems with this. One is you can't expect a lot of people to make a pilot license. So it didn't really scale. And the second problem was that uh, if somebody flies with this two-seater aircraft to a landing pad, and then... uh, Leaves the, leaves the aircraft, then you can't park an aircraft with a 10-meter span on, on that landing pad, and it's blocked for the whole day. So we had to find a different solution than, um, than, you, use, than you do normally with cars when you park the car for the whole day. And uh, the reason we went for these two-seaters was that at the time there was no regulation in place uh, to make larger aircraft and certify them. Uh, But we soon after realized that this regulation was in development and we also started, let's say, lobbying and uh, started having conversations with the European Aviation Safety Authority um, on these regulations. And then about uh, six months later, uh, we pivoted to a four-seater design at the time
0: and the service business model. Very cool. And in terms of uh, going back to the the funding that that you were mentioning, how much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, today it's close to three hundred fifty million. Got it. And I know that obviously, you know, like you encountered um, certain issues, you know, at a seed stage, and then also it was uh, interesting as well at a Series B. So I guess, how do you think that you know the different expectations, and then also the 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 challenging, you know, uh, parts, you know, like have have evolved from Financing cycle to financing cycle, as you were perhaps you know unlocking you know different profiles of investors for this.
1: Yeah, I think overall the challenge was always the same: that you are heading out to a business model to a type of technology. It's hardware. It's uh, in a most regulated environment. The regulation wasn't even there. The operations regulation wasn't there. Um, almost no investor usually has experience with aerospace and. You have maybe five, six years time to market um, in the early days. Um, So it was always very difficult in so far that it was clear there's no investor who is used to this. If you make um, a software startup, you kind of have an ecosystem and you can find people who have experience um, with these business models and and with the typical cycles of development. Here it was different. And... um, It was in each funding round, it it was the same that you had to convince people in a very um, unique way. And and we had to spend much more time with investors to make them comfortable with um, our business plan, with our development schedule, and our program timelines. And I have to admit, they always delayed. So it was, I think, the first pitch we had to our seed investor was that we could do this with. I don't know, 50 million and three and a half years or so. And uh, meanwhile, it's probably closer to 500 million and it's still three and a half years out until we are on the market. We have made a ton of progress and we have 500 people now. And I think now the timelines are realistic and we have lots of aerospace people in the team who are backing these timelines and uh, who have brought tremendous knowledge into the company. But there was a big learning uh, on these things uh, in terms of the actual challenge not being maybe the technology in itself, but the much bigger challenge is its certification and the industrialization, the supply chain, the procurement, uh,
0: the operations
1: regulation and these things.
0: Very cool. And and obviously, you know, I've I've seen that. When it comes to like really looking ahead and, and thinking about like what's possible here, I mean, what you guys believe is that, you know, really what you want to accomplish here is to allow anyone to fly wherever and whenever they want. So how, how is this? Tell us about, a bit about this. That's the mission of our
1: company. And where does this come from? Um, I also spent some time with high-speed trains just out of curiosity in the past. And they are a great transportation system. They are fast. You travel at 300 kilometers per hour. They are all electric, super efficient, and they drop you off in the city center. The only problem is that the infrastructure is in the billions. They are just prohibitively expensive to build anywhere else than between extremely large hubs. And the intention we had with Lilium, and we still have, is to create a transportation system that does the same job like a high-speed train, but independently of the community size. So the target is... To connect any small village any mid-sized city up to suburbs of large cities or the city centers of, of large cities uh, to each other at a speed of 300 kilometers per hour but at the same price like a train and this promise um, is possible thanks to the technology developments in electric motors and batteries etc so that we can actually make a vertical takeoff and landing plane that is super low noise so it can access urban areas And at the same time, have a sufficient range of 250 to 300 kilometers to actually serve this business model of regional air mobility in a a meaningful way. And next to achieving it, technically, the most important point for us always is that it needs to be affordable. So we have the serious intention to make this affordable to a middle class um, person with an average income. Uh, in in countries like Germany or Europe or the US or so, and um, we meanwhile have very good data that this is actually achievable.
0: Got it. So I guess uh, especially for the people that are listening, you know, what would uh, let's say the Lilium Jet, you know, like how would it be different from like the normal plane that they're used to? I mean, what what so that they so that it becomes a little bit more visual as they are listening to to what you have to say here.
1: So firstly, it's all electric, um, you, so you don't have to have um, a bad feeling when flying. Um, it's emission-free. Uh, secondly, it takes off like a helicopter. So imagine you have an airplane that looks a bit like a business jet, but it sits on a helicopter uh, pad and it takes off vertically like a helicopter. And then it transitions into forward flight, and about 30 seconds later, uh, it flies like a normal aircraft. That's amazing. But it's very low noise. That,
0: that reminds me of the uh, army planes, no? I think it was the F something where you can like do that vertically and then you can go forward. I mean, that's quite a, quite amazing. Yeah, the Harrier
1: can do this. Um, there's uh, the B-22 in the U.S., uh, which is a troop transporter that can take off and land vertically. I think in the military, there was there's a long history of recognizing the advantage of not needing a runway. But there are also big technical challenges um, if you make a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft because you need to to carry more thrust from the engines than your own weight. Whereas a normal aircraft normally carries about 30% uh, of its weight uh, in terms of engine thrust. So you're having four or five times more engine power on board and that is a challenge. Everything needs to be super lightweight.
0: Got it. So I guess the... Um you know, one, one thing that, that I know is that you even introduced this to Angela Merkel. So how, how, was, to, how was introducing this to Angela Merkel? I mean, the most uh, powerful politician there in, in Germany.
1: Yeah, it came quite unexpected. But uh, one of our employees who runs the public affairs um, uh, had, had some relationships there. So I got invita- invited uh, to show our prototype um, to Angela Merkel on the trade fair. And obviously, I was nervous. uh, But then she came and she was extremely smart and natural. She was excited. She had, I think, planned uh, one or two minutes to to stay there. But she spent more than 10 minutes asking questions, joking, and and really uh, understanding what we were up to and uh, how this
0: was working. So it was a very exciting conversation for me. Very nice. So I guess, how do you think that aerospace is going to change over the course of the next, let's say, five to ten years? Well, with Corona, of course, it will at first have um, a dip that's uh,
1: quite worrying in the next uh, one or two years where the whole aerospace industry will have probably um, a strong dip in terms of demand and revenues. But after this, I think uh, it, it will come back and it will come back very strongly because it's the only means of transportation uh, we have that is fast uh, and that doesn't need infrastructure that can connect continents, etc. But uh, I also think that we will see a very strong push towards more efficient aircraft and ultimately fully electric aircraft. It will take probably more 30 years until we can make electric transatlantic flights, but at least for regional and um let's say, in a US domestic flights and European domestic flights, we will have the technology uh, quite soon to actually replace those flights, uh, replace the kerosene and, and make them fully electric. And that's an exciting time for me and an exciting time for Lilium because we are at the forefront developing these um, electric aircraft technologies and there's an almost unlimited um, field to apply these technologies. And then, of course, we will see a big rise um, of of vertical takeoff and landing urban air mobility, and we will see a big rise um, of drones in the, let's say, 5, 10, 15 kilograms class. Um, So we will have a big change on in all ends. We will also see autonomy. Some people believe that autonomy in the air will come earlier than on the ground because you are in a quite predictable and deterministic environment, which makes it uh, much easier. And on the other side, you already have a very high degree of automation in terms of autopilots, which is uh, from a technology point of view, very established and very widespread. Um, so effectively, we have the full spectrum from autonomy to electrification, uh, to digital airspace management, to new business models. It's one of the most exciting times to be in aerospace um, ever.
0: Very, very cool. Very cool. And and for the people that are listening to get a, an idea and a sense of, of how big the operation is, I mean, anything you can share with regards to perhaps number of employees or anything else? At the moment, we have uh, close to
1: 500 employees and uh, we are still strongly growing. So it's if, if it effectively feels like um, a general aviation aircraft manufacturer uh, in terms of size of the team. And size of the project uh, but this will continue to grow uh, because we are also um, operating our own service um, which means you can then have a Lilium phone app on your smartphone and book one of our aircraft and um, you will always have the same brand experience and the same service and user experience whether you book this in london in in berlin or in new york that's really and that cool. means we're we'll also having a commercialization team and a software team. We have uh, an airline team at the moment. We have a team building up maintenance capabilities. So also from that perspective, it's extremely exciting for us because I'm not sure there are historic examples um, where you have in one company the full spectrum from design organization to manufacturing organization uh, to uh, maintenance
0: organization and an airline operation. And, and I typically ask the, the, the guests that come on the show, I mean, there's one question that I like to to get your, your answer on, and that is, if you had the opportunity, I mean, knowing what you know now, I mean, you've been at it for quite a while now with Lilium, I mean, since 2015, incredible journey, you know, uh, uh, so, so, so I want to ask you, if you had the opportunity to go back in time, you know, let's say back to that time where maybe you were still at school and thinking about maybe launching your own thing. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself, knowing what you know now, before launching a company, and why?
1: I think the most important one is raising money as early as you can, and not bootstrapping for a year because you are just so much more effective on a project like this um, if you have more people. Um, I think the second advice I would give myself is... Um, hiring maybe even more for uh, even more let's say extremely experienced people in the very early phases uh, even when you just have 10 people or so um, because this aerospace experience which we have in the team right now is tremendously valuable and um, the earlier you start uh, doing this and professionalizing um, the better but on the other side it, it was almost impossible for us given the the funding we had at the time uh, to hire much more people and, and hire much more senior people. But at least I would say if you can, in in, in an aerospace environment, I, I would go for this um, very early. Um, maybe one other thing I would do is um, talking to the supply chain earlier. So at the moment, we have uh, tons of conversations and partnerships in built up with the large um, aerospace um, suppliers. Um, but... This is just something where we all noticed it's very helpful to see their capabilities and to see also where they have limitations so you can adapt your plans as early as possible to this.
0: Very. And then last but not least, I think
1: the classic um, startup um, doesn't work in aerospace in a sense that the classic thing would be Grow as quickly as you can, make a minimum viable product, um, accept the chaos, and go on the market as quickly as possible. Um, in the aerospace environment, it's it's almost the opposite. Of course, you want to move fast and you want to be innovative and prototype and fail quickly. But on the other side, um, you have only one shot and that has to be perfect. So our airplane is in the certification program with both the European and the US aviation safety authorities. And... The requirements we have to meet there are the same like for a commercial airliner. That means anything else than perfect will not do the job for the first aircraft that goes on the market. And that drives um, a different uh, way of managing the company. You need to be much more rigorous. You need to be much more process driven. You must have an extremely strong uh, quality management system in all areas from engineering to manufacturing, etc., And it's a quite big deal to build this up uh, from scratch. There are not many people, even globally, who have built up um, an aerospace manufacturer uh, and who have obtained all those approvals um,
0: in parallel. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Daniel, so for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: The best way is uh, to just drop us a line on, on one of our social media or in our um, inbox. We are always excited about um, people with glowing eyes and uh, people who have a ton of energy to make our vision
0: work. Fantastic. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. Thank you, Alexandro. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic.